when we sold our products through trunk shows, we would do really, really well. And so I, I knew that people actually liked the product. But when we launched our site in early 2013, we couldn't generate revenue to save our lives. It was just, it was painful. And I, I just really didn't understand what that disconnect was. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Sarah LaFleur, to our show today. Sarah is the founder and CEO of MM LaFleur, a fashion company creating practical, inspired wardrobes for the modern professional woman. From an early age, Sarah was exposed to high-end fashion through a mother who worked in the industry. But it wasn't until Sarah graduated college and started shopping for her own work clothes that she realized the experience and the clothes were completely lacking. After starting her career at Bain as a consultant, Sarah moved to private equity, but left abruptly because of cultural problems at her firm. At this difficult point in her life, Sarah felt like she had nothing to lose. And despite having no direct fashion experience, she decided to take a risk and create clothing that professional women like herself were looking for. In this episode, we talked to Sarah about her windy journey that led her to entrepreneurship, how the business grew from negative $2,000 in their bank account to now a multi-million dollar company, how they tripled their revenue overnight from one specific strategy that ended up saving their company, and how she turned the crisis of COVID into a brand-defining moment. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much, Yasmin. It's wonderful to be here. I'm so grateful that you're with us. I know you just welcomed two beautiful twins into this world this year. So I'm sure your hands are full and it's such an honor to have you join us today. Yes. Oh, actually, Yasmin, I should have said it's actually three. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't know it was three. I, so I had I had a baby and then um, our wonderful surrogate had the twins. And so it's three babies. Yeah, back to back. Wow, that is <laughs> Honestly, incredible and just amazing, especially in a year like this. But how are you doing? How's motherhood? Yeah, it's been, you know, I, I really wanted to be a mom for so long. And I have to say it has exceeded my expectations. It's definitely this kind of, I think, partially driven by hormones, but kind of uh, uh, inexplicable joy, I think, really. Um, so uh, we've really been enjoying it. Obviously, like it's not all rainbows and unicorns, but um, there's so much to love about it. I believe it. Congratulations again. You know, I love having women on the podcast who are amazing businesswomen, amazing mothers. So I can't wait to share your story with everybody today. So let's jump into it. I'd love to start with your upbringing. You had quite the multicultural upbringing as a child. Not only did you live in many different countries, but your dad was also American and a U.S. diplomat, and your mom was Japanese and a pretty incredible businesswoman. From your perspective, I'd love to hear what your childhood was like. Yeah, sure. I, you know, I think it was uh, it it involved a lot of moving in and out of different cultures. I think anyone who's multicultural you know, what, whatever nationality or ethnicity they might be will relate to this. But I think it, it was a lot of sometimes feeling like a fraud or an outsider. Uh, you know, I remember moving to Washington, D.C. from Tokyo, Japan, uh, really speaking English, but but not all that well. I had been speaking English with my, my dad, but that was really about it. 
Um, and then I remember, you know, I went to this public school in DC and they said, um, you know, I was coming in at the end of first grade and they said, please write your name. And I, I didn't know how to spell my last name. And so, you know, uh, I was put in ESL, and I think there's just kind of a, a little bit of a chip on your shoulder uh, as an ESL child because you just, you know, you don't feel like you can fully express yourself. And then I think, likewise, when I came back to Japan three years later, I was really comfortable in my um, American self, um, you know, learned how to speak and write English. Uh, and, and then when I moved back to Japan, um, I was suddenly really... Uh, I mean, I was at the bottom of, of my class again. I remember my test scores were so bad uh, that my teachers just didn't put uh, scores on them anymore. Everyone would get a score except me because, you know, I was just kind of bombing every exam there was. And, and, um, and so I think it was this kind of constant moving in and out of different places and, and really kind of struggling initially, um, sometimes a few months, sometimes, you know, a couple of years to kind of get back up to um, that level of fluency. And, um, and I, I repeated that a couple of times. And so I feel very, I think that is like fundamentally a part of my identity. Um, I'm not quite sure how it plays out, but I, I think maybe one one key way is like the place that I, I usually am most comfortable is in this environment where there are a lot of different kinds of people. Um, I think it's for that reason that I really love living in New York. Um, it's so freeing to be in New York. There are so little expectations about how you're supposed to behave or how you're supposed to be. And I always joke that Hawaii is the only place where I actually feel like I'm in the majority because everyone looks like they're, they're mixed. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, but definitely it's had a big, big impact on, I think the way I think and the way I am. Yeah. And I think, you know, being, growing up, being in different environments back and forth, I think it also translated into, which we'll go into in a little bit, your professional career, right? You jumped into so many different industries, wanting to try something new that, you know, might have felt more comfortable for you as someone who has always had to kind of restart and be in new environments growing up. So it's super fascinating to hear about just your overall upbringing. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's a really good comparison. I didn't quite, um, yeah, that's that's really true. My mother always describes it as um, uh, professional schizophrenia, but I feel like I, I've always tend to like lean into different extremes, whether that's you know private equity on one end or you know working at a refugee camp on the other end. Uh, definitely very very different environments. Sounds like me as well. I, if you look at my career journey, <laughs> I like went hard in investment banking, then went hard into tech, and I just am always jumping around. But uh, definitely similar themes to you. Yeah, so. yeah. Yes. And, you know, you briefly talked about your mother and I would love to dig a little bit deeper into her because she was such a huge inspiration for you. You know, she worked in high fashion in your childhood and then she owned her own jewelry business that I know she was widely passionate about. I would love to hear more about your perspective growing up in that atmosphere. And do you think it impacted the way you look at your professional career? Because she loved what she did. She really did and still does. And, you know, I was just on the phone with her last week and she was, you know, saying like, well, you know, my hope really is to be die uh, working until the day I die. And I just want to make sure, you know, that's possible. Um, which is just, I think, such a fundamentally different uh, way of thinking. I didn't even realize it was so different until I think becoming an adult and people talking about retirement and saving up enough for retirement and, um, you know, God, you know, your job is such a drag and um, people are counting down the days until they can go on vacation. I think if anything, my mother was, you know, 
the opposite. Uh, she loved going to the office. She loved working. And I think um, I, what, you know, sent really, really positive signals to both me and my sister that um, your career was something that you were supposed to cherish and really put a lot of yourself into. And um, I would say like, call, call it your life passion. Obviously that's a, that's a real luxury, you know? And I, I realized that I think, especially, you know, through COVID, I think a lot of us are really thinking about, okay, what, what is the meaning of work? Um, and, but I think she was in this fortunate position where she, she had a, a certain amount of autonomy about what it is that she wanted to do. Um, so I definitely had that from her, uh, and, and my dad too. I mean, he was a career diplomat. He worked for the State Department for nearly forty years. Um, you know, I think uh, he feels like he was really a, a civil servant at the end of the day. Um, and you know, our family made huge sacrifices so that he could uh, he could really contribute to this mission that he felt very purely about, which is American diplomacy. So. Um, often our, our dad would live in a separate country from my mom and my sister and, and I. And um, I think I, as a kid, I used to think that was normal. But only now, you know, do I realize like that, that my parents make huge sacrifices to so my, you know, my dad could, could work at the State Department. You have absolutely translated that in your own life and the sacrifices that you've made in your multiple careers and your business. And that takes me to, you know, as you mentioned in COVID, people are reflecting on what work means to them and reevaluating what that is. That is something that you really did early in your career, right? We talked a bit about this, that you had such a windy career path, jumping into so many different things. I would love for you to share more about that because I really think it'd be helpful for a lot of women who are looking to navigate their career at this stage in their lives. First of all, I will start by saying that, uh, if, if one day I write um, an, an autobiography, my 20s will be, you know, titled The Search for the Perfect Job. And I think my 20s, it was it was painful. Um, you know, I can still recall, like, I just, I think every year I was struggling with the question of, like, am I in the right job? Like, am I doing what I want to be doing? I think, um, you know, management consulting, while, like, the most amazing training ground, it was pretty clear that that is not what I thought of as my passion, you know, I thought like, should I be going to medical school? Should I open a bookstore bar? Like that was a, that was something serious I thought about for a while when I was 24. Um, uh, you know, private equity, I obviously considered at one point, but I think it was a, just a lure of it. It wasn't like, wow, private equity is my passion. Um, although I thought the job was super interesting. Um, so I, it, there was this, I think, I think there was a lot of, I put a lot of pressure on myself to find a career that I found meaningful. I think partly because as you, you know, so correctly identified, um, Yasmin, um, you know, there was in my, in my head, there was this idea that your job was really tied to your passion and therefore a part of you. Um, so yeah, I, uh, it was a huge struggle and, you know, I, I don't envy people yeah, I shouldn't say young people. That's uh, and I, I really don't mean that in a pejorative way. I, I think it's I, I think it's a real challenge. It's hard being in your twenties and like thinking about what it is that you want to do with your life. It's so hard, um, and I feel like the world, especially right now, doesn't make it easy for you. Like whether it's like student debt loads or um, just the lack of options and upper mobility uh, that there is right now. So um, I think it's it's in many ways a double whammy. 
It is really tough in my early 20s. And honestly, I'm now, I'm turning 32 soon, but I just am getting clear on my passions and what I want to do. But to your point, you know, I think figuring out what might work for your interests. And a lot of that came to me just talking to people similar to what I'm doing in this podcast I've been doing for years. And I think, you know, even though it helped me make career moves and take jumps, I think similar to your journey, having those different experiences is so important, right? And it's so tough to leave such a coveted job, especially when everybody, you know, for you, private equity, it was the last job you had before you started your company. It was your dream job. A lot of women don't necessarily get that role, especially on the investment side, right? So it is, it's such a coveted job, but going back to to that moment, I'd love to hear more about your experience there because you weren't there for a long time. I think that was your final straw of jumping around in your career and trying different things. So I'd love to hear about that experience because, you know, your next step was starting your business after that. Yeah, sure. Um, I, you know, when I was at this management consulting firm, there was, we were on this track. I mean, in some ways it was, it was, there was a a certain comfort about it because it was like, okay, graduate from college, you go into management consulting. And then I think when, you know, this is still when times are booming 2006. So like before, before the crash happened. Um, but the, the typical path was then people would either go to business school or go into private equity. And um, I, I was always interested in real estate, private equity. I thought, I thought there was something fascinating about, especially in hotels. That was, that was my particular area of passion. And there were really two private equity firms that were very well known for doing um hotel transactions. Um, so I said, okay, if I, if I'm ever going to go into private equity, I would love to go work at one of these firms. And, you know, long story short, I ended up getting a job at one of them. And I just was like, I couldn't believe it because I don't know, somehow I thought I was not qualified for it. I ended up getting a job there. Um, and in some ways it, it had all of the, the luxuries that I thought it would have, you know, it was, um, I saw kind of a type of wealth that I never knew existed. Um, it really opened up my eyes to, you know, the, the how, how billionaires live. Um, I kind of got, I got to see that through, through my, my experience there. Um, uh, and then I think I was also uh, really, I think discouraged uh, personally um, on a personal level, it's a really, really challenging job. Um, I found myself being one of two women out of, you know, dozens of investment professionals. Um, culturally, I was a, a, a terrible fit. I, I wish I had done my due diligence more, but I think at the time I was just so excited to get the job. And so I jumped right in and I, you know, I just remember like week one thinking like, Ooh, like, uh, this is not going to be right. Like this is, I made a mistake. Um, but, you know, I think as, as you know, as many of our listeners know, it's so hard to just kind of leave a job after a week, <laughs> you know, that's like kind of the biggest no-no. And so I just thought to myself, like, okay, I'm going to stick it out for a year, a couple of years if I could. Um, but I think a few months in, it was just very clear, like, wow, like I am, I am like suffering emotionally, like I am really suffering and um, I am... I, I am so unhappy. It just doesn't make sense for me to stay here because my health is being sacrificed. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I ran out of there pretty much as fast as I could. And it was scary at the time. Although I do remember like I, I bought myself these, these earrings on the day I, I told my boss I was going to leave. 
um, I bought these blue earrings um, on the sidewalk in Soho and I call them my freedom earrings um, and I hold on to them. And it's a, it's a reminder that I think really that was the first time that I was saying to someone, you know, like, oh, no, I, I choose to get off this like path that's been laid out for me. Kudos to you for doing that so early in your career, especially as a high achiever. That must have been a really difficult moment, you know, a few months in wanting to leave. How did you garner that confidence, right, to to officially leave the job? Because you didn't necessarily know what your next step was at that time. I know. And, you know, I almost I joke now that it was a good thing that it was so bad that I didn't feel like I had a choice. Um, I think if it was like, if it was something where you're like, ah, I could stick it out for like a year, then like, I probably wouldn't have left. Like I only left because I, I felt like there was no other way I would emotionally survive. Um, and so, you know what? Terrible at the time, hindsight, biggest gift that could have happened. Absolutely. And going back to that moment, I want to just underscored a little bit because it was so pivotal in your life story. You mentioned you felt confused, depressed. You were sad because you left such a well-known job. How were you dealing with your own mental health at the time? Because I know not only were you going down a path of wanting to work on yourself because emotionally you said that job was really hard, but also at the same time, the idea of MM LaFleur kind of came about simultaneously. I had, I had had this idea for better clothing for working women for I think a few years at that point, I had that thought while I was in management consulting, especially being on the road Monday through Thursday and really struggling to pack my suitcase every Sunday night. And then often, you know, being on the plane and then having to go straight to the client site in completely wrinkled clothes. And so I think I had had this idea and it was kind of, I was nurturing it for a little uh, while, but I I never, I think, took that idea too seriously as in like, I didn't think I was going to be the one to actually execute on it. I was kind of the person saying, I wish someone would do something about this. And then I think when, you know, everything just fell apart so, um, (laughs) so magnificently um, after this job, um, it, you know, I think just to put into context, it was also, this was also when, uh, it was also falling apart as, um, I left my last job, which was in South Africa, working for a nonprofit because for a while I thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, so I think, you know, at that point it, it, it was kind of, um, wow. Like I have dug myself so deep into a hole, like at this, like, it doesn't, doesn't matter what I do at this point. Um, I think there was a, a little bit of like throw caution to the wind attitude that came with it. And I believe at the time you had a therapist that you were working with as well, right? Oh, yes. Yes. My Dr. LaMonaco. <laughs> but she has been a lifesaver. And I think, you know, I still see her to this day. So I think we are now 10 years into our relationship. And um, she's someone so near and dear to me, even though I know nothing about her. And apparently that is the hallmark of a, a good therapist. Okay. But, yeah, I know. I know so little about her life. But, um, you know, I... I I think um, meeting her was honestly one of the best things to, to happen to me at that point. You know, I come from a culture, a Japanese culture, like if, if you're seeing a, a, a therapist, there's something deeply wrong with you. And so I think even my mother initially, when I told her I was going to go see a shrink, she was like, well, can you not just talk to your friends? You know, like, yeah, I think there was that, that attitude. Um, but she, she was so wonderful. And I think, you know, to this day, I describe her as like the person who made me feel like I wasn't crazy. It wasn't crazy. And then, um, now, uh, you know, to, to use a boxing metaphor, even though I have never seen a boxing match in my entire life, (laughs) 
you know, she's your coach in the corner. She's always the one holding a towel and cheering you on. And like, you have to go to battle. Like you're the one who's going to fight, fight your day to day. But she's always the one like that, that I get to come back to um, once a week um, for, for a reflective moment. And, um, and knowing that, that she's kind of always there rooting for me. Yeah, I think it's so key, especially if you're taking a big risk in life or starting a business because of this crazy idea you have, you know, it could feel so lonely. So whether it's a therapist or a partner or a friend or some type of community that you can lean into, I think is so key in getting anything huge off the ground because it's yeah. always scary. <laughs> so scary. And like, and, uh, and it's really hard, I think, to understand that startup mentality, um, unless you've been it yourself, like, I, I adore my college roommates dearly. They're, they're some of my closest friends, but um, I think it's, it's uh, you know, they weren't the ones that I, I turned to initially. It was really other people in the startup community, other entrepreneurs, um, you know, it kind of takes one to know one uh, and, and that moment of desperation that so often crosses your mind. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the reason why this podcast even existed, because I was going through my own journey and the the conversations were so helpful. And I was like, I need to scale this and help any women entrepreneur who's going through the same thing. So it really does make a difference. So I'd love to hear more about, you know, you had this idea for MM LaFleur always kind of in the back of your mind. And now at this point in your life, you're thinking about kind of taking the first next step. So as someone who didn't necessarily have any knowledge of the fashion industry or even connections, what were those early steps you took to really get the idea off the ground initially? The first thing I did, I think in true like management consulting form was like I started building a deck around it, um, which turned out to be completely like not useful in the sense that it didn't get, like, I don't think it saw the light of day ever, but it was orienting for me, understanding, you know, what it is that I actually meant when I said I wanted to start a a clothing line for working women. Um, And then I think the other most important thing that I I started doing at the time was was looking for uh, my designer because it was very clear from the onset that I wasn't going to be the designer. You know, I considered myself the customer. If anything, I was the merchant. I, um, and it was, I think, you know, just seeing it through my mother's experience, it was, it it was going to be so important to have somebody who really understood what high quality garments looked like and felt like. Um, you know, I, I had some other designers, uh, initially who just said, well, why don't you just like essentially copy what other, what other, um, designers have already put out there and just like out of pocket, out of sleeve, whatnot. But I was like, no, no, that's not right. Like, I really want to fundamentally create something different. And in order to do that, like I need my own designer and we need to start from scratch. So, um, I started that process, uh, which very long story, but I like through a friend of a friend, I, I met this headhunter. Um, most headhunters like did not have the time of day for me. It was one headhunter who decided to take a chance on me and introduced me to Miyako, who was my co-founder, our chief creative officer, former head designer at Zach Posen. And she was really the ball of talent that, that I was looking for. And so, you know, were it not for her, I think, I mean, the business would just not be what it is today. 
What I love so much about that story is you didn't have any connections in fashion. I think you reached out to one friend who was somewhat in fashion, telling her about your idea. And she's the one that really introduced you to this world of headhunters because before that, you didn't even know it existed. So it just shows that, you know, you might not necessarily know everything about a specific industry, but when you take those first few steps, you never know where it could lead you. And look, you found your co-founder, Miyako, in that whole process. It's so true. You know, you just kind of actually made me remember this moment. I had a flashback to this moment when I walked into one of the headhunters offices and, you know, I had like kind of put on my best outfit because I wanted to be taken seriously. And it was just so clear from this meeting that he was kind of like, you know, doing the the head pat, like, oh, like you're trying to start a fashion business. Oh, that's cute. You know, that kind of thing. And, and just feeling so discouraged by it. And, um, you know, there's a, part of me that that wishes I could go back to that that Sarah 10 years ago and be like like even this meeting will have been worth it um because there's so many moments where it's it's just so discouraging you know each 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 meeting feels so personal seriously it is such a skill not to take those kinds of meetings personally I actually have another question about you meeting your co-founder Miyako. You know, at that point, she was working, she was actually pretty well known in fashion and she was a design director at Zach Posen. I'm curious, what do you think it was about you and your idea around MM LaFleur that really gravitated her towards the business? Because it's not like you were competing on a high-end name brand that she was used to or even able to pay her competitively because you guys were just starting out at the time. So what do you think it was that allowed you two to really meet and her to get excited about what you were up to? It's a one, it's a wonderful question. And I think I still kind of, uh, Miyako and I have never really had a chance to really talk about this moment, but like, I think it was a lot of it was like kismet and and where we were in, in that moment in our lives. She was going through a lot of change on the personal front uh, and professionally. I think she was really questioning where fashion was going after having seen the financial crisis really impact a lot of the fashion designers, um, high-end fashion designers that she you know worked for or worked with. And I think she was at this point where she wasn't quite sure like what the meaning of fashion was anymore. Um, as she says, you know, she thought everything that had to be designed already had been designed. And there I was this kind of woman clueless, entirely clueless about fashion saying like, Hey, there's this like swath of women that, that are being completely ignored by the fashion world. And like, we want better clothes. And I think she was just kind of, um, she thought it was intriguing. I think the other part, which is totally undeniable is like, we just have good chemistry. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's like a romantic partner in that sense. And, um, she's, uh, not my romantic partner, she's my business partner, but I think our, our value sets are very aligned. I think whatever instinct that both of us had at that moment, it has really withstood the test of time. It's been, you know, 10 years now. Wow. I love hearing stories like that because I think there is a little element of serendipity and, you know, that comes into whether it's finding your partner or getting a business off the ground. But once again, you take those few steps, you never know where the magic will lie. So I love just hearing how you got connected with Miyako. And also the fact that you weren't in the world of fashion and there was so much that you can add value from as a working woman who understood the pain points of clothing. I mean, everything you're saying just brings back flashbacks on, you know, those planes when I'd be 
traveling and my uncomfortable dresses and making sure it's all fit appropriately, you know, but, um, no, I was going to say, I think that pain is real. You know, we, we share the stat that women on average spend 14 more days getting ready for work, uh, versus men, you know, it's like, it's crazy when you just think about that, the sheer amount of time. And I think we all, um, especially now in this COVID lifestyle, like just realize how much effort goes into getting ready in the morning. You know, I think there's, there's a big part of it that I, I miss. Don't get me wrong, but I, I think there's also like elements of it that, that are so stressful that, you know, and it's nice to get a little bit of a reprieve from that. So I completely agree. And that reminds me, I think when you and Miyako were doing the first samples and bringing it to life, I think you had a few tests that you, that the dress would have to hit. Was it like the taxi test? Yeah. I would love for you to walk through that because it's, it's so important. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Well, one we called the bend over test. And so if you bend over, can people see your cleavage that, you know, it's not like I have, you know, a particularly large chest or anything, but it was just like always something that I was conscious of, hyper-conscious of, I guess like being in a in a room full of men um i think the other one is the visible panty line the vpl so i that was the other bend over test when you bend over can you can you see that underwear line the taxi test can you can you move in and out of um, a cab seamlessly without ripping a seam pun you know not not intended um so uh, you know those were the things that we would always watch out for and i think actually since then like depending on the product type we have a lot of other tests too like with jackets um i think one of the the most uncomfortable things with, with women's jackets is just like the lack of stretch across the backside. And so now, you know, when we do these fit tests, we literally are, you know, pulling our arms across each other, um, raising our arms high into the sky, just making sure that like the movements aren't uncomfortable. There are pants. Um, I hate, hate tight pants and elastic. Um, I'm sorry, uh, zip up pants. Um, and I hate any bands that really, um, limit uh my stomach um I, I like to eat and I, I you know sometimes i have a big lunch and, and just that kind of discomfort that comes uh after you you eat something i just wanted to get rid of that entirely so actually our best-selling foster pan i asked miyako you know is there any way to get rid of the the seam and so now actually um you'll see in the the foster pant construction and it's just like one flat piece so that you know if you if you eat it just like stretches out automatically there's nothing restricting it it's really important to us that that she she moves uh seamlessly and energetically and like she doesn't feel restricted by her clothes um even if she looks completely appropriate uh so yeah, lots of tests now, but originally it started with those three that you mentioned. So thinking about the early days when you were bringing these items to life and doing all the tests that you mentioned, what was your funding situation like? How much did you invest, whether it was personally or through friends and family, that helped you get the brand off the ground? Very initially, I had saved up um, a little under 40000 I think it was like $37,500 to be exact. So I basically just like emptied that entire savings account and put that into the business account, which um, in retrospect was totally crazy that, um, you know, when you're 27, you're not thinking about like retirement allocations or whatnot. So just put that into the business. And my parents actually lent me exactly the same amount. Um, And so I started with that amount. It was around $75,000. And that really took me through the first year. And, you know, it might not seem like a lot of money in terms of starting a business, but actually it, it got me through a good amount. Yeah, I'm sure you're watching every single dollar that went out and came in. 
And one thing you mentioned in a previous interview that I thought was really interesting was you talked about the importance of having another job on the side to make extra money when you were starting out and how much of a relief that was when you were building out MM LaFleur because you were able to bring a little bit of income into your life. Can you share more with our audience about that moment in your life and why you think side hustles are so important? I think this is like probably the one of the most important lessons I can impart to any uh, anyone thinking of starting a business, which is that uh, starting a business takes time, you know, sure, like there's the Instagrams of the world. Uh, but for the most part, I think businesses take a, a lot of time to nurture and things don't happen uh, quickly. So you want to give yourself that time. And sometimes I hear entrepreneurs say something along the lines of, oh, you know, I have X thousand dollars saved up. So I'm going to put this like that's going to be my living expenses and I'm going to start working on my business and hopefully I can figure something out before my savings run out. And I always think like, wow, that is like the worst strategy because you have set this artificial timeline for yourself about, you know, when it is that your business can no longer not afford to be successful. So I, you know, and after having put that money into the business, I didn't have a single dollar left. So it wasn't like I could um, not you know, bring in an income and work on my business, I had to find something. I ended up uh, tutoring for two and a half years. Um, I tutored the SATs, among other things. It was wonderful. I mean, it, it really gave me a lot of flexibility in my schedule. Um, I basically worked on my business from, you know, the morning till around 4pm. And then I would tutor from like 4 to 7pm and then pop back uh, and online and, and work on the business a little bit more, but gave me the ability to go in and out of the factories during the day because, you know, they were operating during regular business hours. Um, and I, uh, and I actually just like loved having another uh, part of my life where I was like interacting with kids. It was such a joy. Um, I, you know, I always say like, it, it can be anything. You could be dog walking, you can be working as a barista, you can be, you know, a sales assistant at a store, like, just do something else that brings in income. So you're not so dependent on, on your savings or whatever it might be um, to keep pursuing your dream. You know, really that I think that that is what it's about. And I'm so glad you brought this up is starting a business takes time. And I think some people, like you said, have expectations, like I have X amount of savings. Okay. I'll give it a year. This will be my revenue. You can't predict <laughs> all yeah. the things. Yes. Right. Having whether it's another job or something that can help you bring that income, it just relieves that stress for yourself that you can continue building the business the way you want in the right time. And one thing that I've learned from doing, you know, now over 30 interviews with self-made women is you don't pay yourself in the early days. Every dollar yeah. you're taking, <laughs> you're investing in the business. So that, yeah. you know, I knew that, but hearing it so much, I was like, okay, that is the reality. If you want to have control of your business yes. starting out. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, I remember like someone in the initial days was like, well, you know, a founder should always pay herself at least a hundred K. And I was like, <laughs> like theory, that sounds incredible. But like, I just can think of so many other ways to spend that hundred K right now. At some point I was able to get there, but it took a while. I would say like, I didn't get there for probably three and a half years. Those are, those are sacrifices that, that you have to make. And honestly, uh, I didn't mind making them, I guess, because it wasn't like I wanted to like, buy anything too fancy or um, go on like extravagant trips. I, I think my needs were pretty basic then because um, all of my time was going into the business. 
last week we had the founder of Kali Power, Gail Becker on, and she had a very successful career in media and left to start her business. And she talked about switching the lifestyle was not even a big deal for her because she was so passionate about what she was creating, you know, similar to you when you are fully immersed in your dream and you're so confident about the vision and the mission. I think those temporary monetary gains that you're not having is okay. Totally. I think the only thing I will say that was really hard around that time was all the bridal showers and the weddings. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I was like hemorrhaging cash, yeah. you know, going on these trips that I really didn't not want to go. I mean, I, you know, these were my girlfriends, but God, those things are expensive. So, um, uh, yeah, I, my heart goes out to anyone who is in their late twenties and going to a gazillion weddings and um, also trying to start a business at the same time. Seriously. I can't remember who I was talking to, but I literally was saying the same thing. You know, this year I'm spending every single dollar of mine into this new business that I'm launching. I can't wait to share early next year. But back, you know, before coronavirus, I was flying places for bachelorettes, going to weddings. I'm definitely in that age range, but I've absolutely been able to save more money this year (laughs) than last year. So going back to the business, how did you guys gain awareness and start selling your products in the early days? Because if I read this correctly, I don't believe you guys had a website starting out. So how did you gain that traction with your consumers? Yeah, and you know, yeah, we didn't have a website. We didn't have marketing dollars. What we did have was, I think, a good network. We knew who our customers were. Um, And so we organized a ton of trunk shows, uh, which um, so we, we would rent a hotel suite or um, a friend's apartment um, if she was hosting for us, willing to host for us. And, and we would just do these trunk shows, um, you know, night after night. I do remember one particularly painful trunk show, which is we did it, I think, at um, some uh, social club in New York uh, from like 7 to 10 p.m. And then we packed up the dresses and like, mind you, it's not like we brought 10 dresses. They were like, you know, 250 dresses, packed it up in a truck and then drove down to Washington, DC from like midnight till 4 a.m. And then woke up the next morning at 10 a.m. and did a trunk show from 10 to 2 p.m. in DC. And like, you know, it was, it was really, really hard work. But when we did these trunk shows, we always knew that we made a lot of money. We could make a lot of money and we were just focused on generating revenue. And so I think, um, it was really hard, but a really productive way for us to bring money into the business and also really get the word, word out. Um, if people think, you know, I think when people think trunk shows, they think small scale, you know, not very, not scalable. Um, but I, I think actually there, there's a lot of marketing power in doing these like small events where you actually get to meet your customers face to face. And then people talk about it. So I think after like the first two trunk shows, uh, by the third trunk show, we would just start putting ads on Facebook. Um, and when I say ads, I mean, it was like, you know, we would like write on our Facebook page, this is what we're doing. And people would show up at the trunk show. We legitimately didn't know a single person that would come. There was this incredible word of mouth effect that was happening that, that really got us excited about, you know, what our business could be. 
especially in the early days, I think having that intimate connection with your customer to make sure, you know, you're understanding their needs or what their thoughts are. And for you guys, people loved it. It was organically growing. The word of mouth was huge. And I know you weren't necessarily thinking about raising money, but once you kind of saw a little bit of that traction with the trunk shows, you felt pretty confident that the proof of concept is there, right? Like going back to your management consulting hat, it's like, okay, you've proven the concept. Now you can go out there and fundraise. I'd love to kind of hear more about that journey because I know there was a lot of lessons coming from that moment in your life as well. Well, I think the first time we went out to try to go raise, uh, you know, what's typically called a seed round, your your initial round, or and sometimes if your family and friends is your first round, your seed round might be your second round. Um, it was, uh, a to- we, I mean, we bombed. I think we must have done, I don't know, let's say 50 meetings. And there... It was also so confusing because I think what, um, I, you know, I was mostly doing it with my my then CMO, Annie. She and I would go out and we would get these really mixed signals. We would hear like, yeah, yeah, this is, I really love this idea. Like, love you guys. Like, this this sounds like it has a lot of potential. Um, and, and we were like, okay, that was a positive signal. But then whenever we would follow up, like, it, either it took a really, really long time to schedule the next meeting or they wouldn't respond or, I, I, mean, I mean, I actually remember one investor didn't even show up <laughs> to our meeting. Um, you know, it was just I, like, it, there was never anyone who would just say to our face, like, sorry, like not a good time uh, or not, not even not a good time, like not a good investment, not this isn't the right, this isn't the right investment for us. And so there was a lot of like deciphering mixed signals that had to happen. And, um, and, and so very emotionally stressful. Um, and I think at, at some point we, we said to ourselves, okay, this is not going to happen. We're going to have to go back out, um, to our, like, again, what is known as broadly friends and family again, and see if we can raise that way. Um, and through, um, I think at that point, what happened is to, through my, um, through my then boyfriend, now husband's um, childhood friends, father's former business partner, um, I, I got connected with him, and it was through him that um, we were able to secure this kind of big round of seed funding um, that really changed the course of our business. And I, you know, were it not for him, we would definitely not be around. So, um, but it was, uh, you know, it was, it was the most kind of. Uh, what felt like an aimless process where, where you're just kind of doing a lot, not quite sure whether you're making any traction. And was that investor, the infamous Bob, your boyfriend's father's friend's friend, or however way it was connected? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. That's the infamous Bob, Bob Deutsch, um, who continues to be a great mentor and friend. And what's actually interesting about your relationship with Bob was he was more of a mentor for you when you were fundraising. You didn't necessarily think that he would be an investor. So it's interesting to see how that kind of all played out for the best. Yeah, exactly. You know, he was a really good um, coach for me. He, you know, I got introduced to him because essentially I was having trouble raising and I'd gone and talked to this, um, uh, boyfriend's friend's father initially because he's a very successful entrepreneur and he said you should talk to my CFO my former CFO Bob like um and 
So we had a couple meetings. Um, he gave me these, like, you know, I think going back to what I said was just like feeling very aimless and not really understanding whether I was, ha was having traction or not. Like, I felt like I didn't know what to do. And I was like, if someone just gives me a little direction, I think I can move forward, but I need that direction. And Bob was, you know, I mean, he was the one who gave it to me. He said like, okay, like, tell me what your, your comps are, you know, what are, what are other comparable businesses? Um, how much are they raising? What kind of revenue are they doing? You know, what multiples are they raising at? And, um, and what kind of, uh, what kind of firms are they raising from? And, and I, I was just so grateful that someone was giving me direction after like this long period of feeling like I was really like walking around aimlessly. Anyway, you know, I think long story short, none of those investments, uh, those pitches came to be, but I think he really threw that saw um, that I was a serious person, um, that I was respectful of his, of his time and took his advice seriously. And, um, and that, you know, I was maybe worth betting on. Um, so, you know, I, you know, like exactly you said, Yasmin, he, he said, you know, I'm actually willing to write a check. And, uh, if you're okay with it, I'll talk to my, my, my golf buddies essentially, and see if they're, they're also interested. And so he put together, this round of financing to me, uh, for me, which is like, um, you know, $400,000 really, I think. I, I think it happened in 24 hours, the quickest $400,000 I've ever raised. Um, and, you know, we're, we're never in this business, will not be alive. So would not be alive. I am very, very grateful. So you raised this 400000 I'm sure that was a huge relief. You had enough money in the bank to get keep the company going. You actually also ended up deciding on finally creating a website and selling direct to consumer. But what was interesting about that moment is when the website was up, you actually didn't have any sales that were coming in and it was essentially cricket. So when you were at that moment in your life, how did you think about gaining awareness? Because now the company is well a very well-known direct-to-consumer brand and you guys are killing it. But what did you do at the time when you didn't have anybody coming to your site? Yeah, you know, I, I think that was, <laughs> while I think I learned a lot in management consulting, I think I like didn't really learn one of the fundamental things about business, which is that you really have to make something that people want. And um and, and when I say want, um, it's not enough to have an amazing product. You actually have to uh, deliver it in the way that, that people want it. Um, what I mean by that is, uh, well, I guess initially, you know, I, I was talking about the trunk shows. When, when we sold our products through trunk shows, we would do really, really well. And so I, I knew that people actually liked the product. But when we launched our site in early 2013, um, and it was a pretty like standard e-commerce site. Uh, we couldn't generate um, revenue to save our lives. It was just, it was painful. And I, I just really didn't understand what that disconnect was. And um, it really, I think it took basically a year and a half. Um, no, I guess a little bit over a year. Uh, we were at this kind of pivotal point in the, in the business where we thought we were going to run out of money. Actually, I think we were, we were, um, I, I tell the story about how actually our bank account was below zero and, and that really still sticks with me because I didn't know bank, you could draw below zero dollars. Um, it turns out you can. And uh, um, I think in this moment of desperation, we said like, what if we just, you know, told our existing customers, we're going to package our existing dresses. We're going to pick some styles that we think will work for you based on your order history. 
we'll send them to you and you can decide what you want to keep and what you want to return. Um, and this was, it was this total last ditch effort, right? Because we just like, we're holding on to inventory. Nobody's buying them. And so we're like, we're basically forcing them into people's hands at this point. Um, but when we sent that email, we had more people respond to that email than we ever had in any marketing email ever. We made more money uh, in that one week than we had in any month prior to that. Um, there was some big unlock that really happened there, which is kind of us realizing how busy this woman was, how time-strapped she was, um, and how much, I think also in that moment in time in e-commerce, you know, our dresses, I think at that point were around $265 to $295. Um, that was an expensive price point for um, e-com. I would call that phase like 2.0 probably, um, early rise of DTC. Um, and, and it really, it took us basically saying, try this on in your home, put it on yourself because we think you're going to like it. And actually being able to do that um, to get a customer to convert. Um, but once we unlocked that, it was, um, we had, you know, that was really a, that was the kind of turning point in our business where, um, uh, we suddenly started to see a ton of growth. Amazing. I mean, it's, it's always fascinating to hear stories where when you have no other choice, the creative idea that will come from you just to make ends meet, right. And for pure survival, yes. like you guys, and it's crazy to think if, and I, if I'm looking at the numbers, right. You know, you mentioned it was October, 2014, you guys were struggling to pay rent. You are overdrawn on your account. And by the end of the year, you're around 8 million in revenue. I mean, that's a huge unlocking for the business. Yeah. It really, really was. I just remember then like we had our finance person laughing because he was like, I never thought you, you know, you said you wanted to do 8 million that year. And like, I, he was like, I laughed at you guys when you said, uh, well, I laughed uh, at you guys when you said that. And I just, I can't actually believe that happened. Yeah. So yeah, that was a, it was a pretty, pretty momentous occasion. That's incredible. So the business is finally doing well. You now know how to attract and sell to your customers. And fast forwarding a little bit, I know 2018 and 2019 was considered to be a really tough year for you in business to the point where, if I read this correctly, you know, your girlfriends and your husband had to really do an intervention in your life. Can you share more about that moment in your life and really what you were going through at the time? Yeah, I, um, you know, the business was going through a lot of changes and, um, I think like several things happened. It was clear that the, that the direction we were in going in at that time was no longer the direction that we needed to keep going. And we had to, we were going to have to change direction. Um, and it wasn't quite clear to me that at that point we had everyone like team wise that we needed around the table. And, and also our funding situation was difficult. Um, it was, I, I was probably gonna have to go out and raise another round. And so like all these things were happening simultaneously. Um, and in the background, I'm doing IVF, um, which has become my second job at that point, because it is unbelievably time consuming. I, I think the pressure of everything just became too much. And, um, I was really like mentally not in a good place so much so that I remember like when my husband went away on a, he had to go on a business trip and I was so scared of being alone. Um, and actually, you know, this was like my mother who's so wonderful. She like, she flew from Tokyo to be with me for those four days because, um, uh, 
you know, I, I didn't want to be alone. Um, and I think it really, but it was, it was actually two of my girlfriends in Chicago who, who kind of sat me down and said, Sarah, you work clearly not well and you need to take a break. And, um, you know, they wanted to ship me off to some, uh, some place, some meditation center, um, which I ended up not doing actually. But um, them even just saying that actually was a huge wake up call for me because I think I was just kind of going, going, going in this direction without noticing that something actually had significantly shifted. I think I, I always considered myself to be a hard worker and someone who put a lot of pressure on her. On, on myself to, you know, achieve. And so it wasn't quite clear to me at that point that I had kind of crossed some sort of line. Um, but they were the ones who said like, you, you don't look happy, you don't look well, and you need to, you need to take care of yourself. And um, so I just, I started making some changes around that time. I think one of the things that was really wonderful for me is, is I, um, I met my, my now president, this um, guy named Eric, who came in uh, around that point as our initially interim CFO and then, and then became our president. But I think just having him as a partner was just, was life-changing for me. It, it can be, I think this is what they say when they say it could be really lonely at the top. You know, even, even though I have the most incredible team and a, an incredible co-founder, um, I think it really took um me bringing on someone like eric like wealth of experience and honestly he he shoulders the business i would say just as much as i do which is an incredible thing to find in someone who is not uh, a founder and so that that has been a really wonderful uh, a wonderful thing for me personally and a, a relationship that I really value. Gosh, I, ca I can't even imagine that time, you know, when you're, you met, you were mentioning just going through the IVF process and how many hours you were spending doing that. And the business is all on your shoulders too, and, and is in a pivotal moment in their life. So, I mean, it's great to hear that you were able to find that strong partner in the business to really allow you to breathe a little bit. Mm -hmm, for sure. And, um, for me, I mean, it's different for everyone, but for me, the, the people are everything. And I think I just find so much support and joy in the people that I work with. So I think it, you know, some people love being a single founder and that's wonderful. Um, I think other people like me, like I, I really value having those partners, especially when things get hard. For sure. And I definitely fall into that same bucket as well. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about this year. It's been such a tough year for mm -hmm. so many people, so many entrepreneurs. I'm curious, how has it impacted MM LaFleur and your business? While COVID has been terrible, I think one of the one of the silver linings is that I think it confirmed that the direction we were moving in was the right one. Um, and what I mean by that is like, as a business, I think we were already seeing a lot of the trends towards casualization back in 2016, 2017. And we started designing towards that woman. Um, we call her the power casual customer. Um, you mentioned you were out in LA, but I think a lot of women who um, either live on the West Coast or work in more um, creative fields or in the tech field, um, you know, we had them coming to us saying, uh, I don't wear I don't wear a hoodie to the workplace. That's so not me. But I also can't wear a suit or a dress. 
to work because then people think I'm interviewing. So can you give me a, a uniform for my workplace? And, and Miyako and I actually, we took this trip out to San Francisco. We met a bun- bunch of people, started um, interviewing a lot of potential customers. And Miyako's really started designing to that woman back in 2017. Um, and so that became a pretty big portion of our assortment, but it was probably a third of our assortment going into 2020. And then COVID basically pushed it all the way, you know, to, I think, d- double, a little more than double around 60% of our sales now. Um, and, and so I think what we saw was this like rapid acceleration um, uh, towards a, a work uh, uniform that is more free, you know, I think, um, we're going to continue to see this. Like, I don't think even when COVID ends, COVID ends, gosh, I can't I believe know. I'm saying those words, but like, you know, um, I don't think everyone's going to just go back to the office five days a week. I think we're going to see a lot of this flexibility and sometimes you're going to work from home and sometimes you're going to work from other locations and sometimes you'll be in the office. And, and so having this, um, having clothing choices that can kind of go with any of those environments, it's a particular, it's a really, I think it's, it's, it's not, it's not sweatpants. Um, it's not PJs. Um, and it's also not a suit. And, and we have really, um, I think identified what it is that that woman is looking for. Um, so, uh, I think it is, it has allowed us to focus a lot. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely a hard year. Wouldn't wish it on any business, but, um, I think we were, we were ready for the changes. Um, so for that, I'm grateful. Yeah. And it was interesting. And if I read this correctly, I think you guys had one of your suit pants that are just extra comfortable. And when COVID hit, you guys changed the marketing around it. And it, now it's become your bestseller. I would love for you to share more about that. Cause I haven't heard any business owner talk about that. Yeah. You know, we have this pant actually. So the New York times, this is a reporter for, she really um, lashed onto this, this um, story. Cause she was like, wow, that it's, it's really rare that an existing product, like sometimes you modify a product, but yeah. it's like rare that an existing product can, can kind of pivot based on the marketing. Um, and it's true. We have this, uh, Crosby pant, which we called it part of our origami suiting collection. Um, you can fold it up into this, you know, and put it in a bag, uh, and throw it in your suitcase, take it out on the other end and it comes out wrinkle free. You know, that was, that was the, what kind of value of this product. And then when COVID hit, obviously nobody is taking out their suitcase and packing. So we said, um, but, but gosh, these are like amazing pants. And I was actually wearing them all the time when uh, we first went into lockdown. And so I was like, well, is there some way that we can actually market this? Um, so we renamed it the Colby Joggers from the Colby's um, Origami Suiting Pants. Um, and we released it that way. And, you know, sales on that pant, uh, you know, it, I think ultimately it went up all the way to 8x, um, 7x, 8x. Uh, and and so we we blew through those, uh, which is pretty exciting. And I think um, a lot of it is just like the contextualization for the customer, you know, making sure that she understands when and how she's going to wear the products that you're making. I love that you took one product and you really changed the way you spoke about it and marketed it to the consumer because there's new ways for them to use this product and you saw such an uptick in sales. So I think it's such an interesting story because that's definitely something that a lot of business owners can implement in their lives today. So I want to close on one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. 
Wealth means so much more than money, and everybody has their own definition of wealth. What does wealth mean to you at this point in your life? I'll start by saying I think money counts for a lot. And I think I say that having been in this kind of scary position initially when I was starting on them, when um, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to make ends meet, and I wasn't quite sure how I was going to keep paying for my therapist. Um, and I thought I had run out of Cobra and, um, Cobra is, um, is, is like the health insurance that you can get for usually up to a year after you leave your job. And at that point, Obamacare hadn't passed. And so I thought I was going to be stranded without health insurance. And it was a really, really scary moment. And, um, I just saw how having, um, a few thousand dollars uh, can really make a huge difference in in your well-being. Um, controversial statement, probably, but I am, you know, whether it's through something like universal income, a la Andrew Yang, or uh, universal healthcare, or universal childcare. Like I, I, I am actually, I am a proponent of those things. I think they. Um, kind of stress that you feel not just just not knowing if if you're going to be able to pay for basic things is so fundamental and i think um so anyway i just i feel like i i need to say that because um you know although i am in a super lucky position where i'm sure my parents would have helped me out i did kind of experience that brief moment where i wasn't quite sure how i was going to make ends meet um and that was scary um and, and i think like once those basic needs are met, like then for me, like I, wealth is about, for me, all about personal relationships. Um, I, I love running my company because I love my team. Uh, I love meeting the customers that we get to, to dress. They're such an inspirational group of people. Um, and, uh, you know, when, <laughs> when I do these VIP dinners and I get to sit next to these incredibly accomplished women, um, and actually people who are just getting, uh, started in their career, I think that's actually one of the great things about our price point is like, it's, it's pretty attainable. Um, we're not cheap, but I wouldn't say we're incredibly expensive either. And so at one of our last VIP dinners, I, I found myself sitting next to the head of investor relations for a major tech company and uh, a, a law associate who was, you know, uh, two years out of law school. And we shared so much in common, even though the three of us were in totally different life stages. So um, I think it's, it's those kinds of connections that really make me feel like my life is full. Um, maybe I'm sure a cliche answer, but I, uh, I think I think that that's what I really feel. Yes, and that's all that matters. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your awesome story. It was such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Aswan. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.